but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is a standalone TBS mailbag episode. I'm excited. Are you? Oh, I love mailbag episodes. People just send us questions and we get to share our opinion about anything and everything freely. This is literally a white man's dream, isn't it? Wow, hilarious. <laughs> no, I'm going to stop because I've been told, it's been brought to my attention that I am a wicked, evil oppressive person and so i need to be mm -hmm. nicer to you so are you comfortable so what we're going to do is you and i are going to alternate choosing questions that we want to answer we haven't honestly we haven't done a lot of over preparing for this so it's going to be a lot of off the cuff responses this is an unfiltered look i don't know i made lots of notes on my agenda you have none oh. so maybe you're speaking for yourself <laughs> okay go ahead pick one uh, if the ATP WTA tour was to expand an extra five tournaments, which five cities would you like to see host? And this comes from Shane Bullen at Shane Bullen. Okay, first I have to think of the cities that don't have a tournament. Or a prominent tournament. Mm -hmm. Rochester, New York, number one. That, that would be a <laughs> terrible choice, but okay. Well, so it is my hometown. But Rochester has hosted the Ryder Cup in golf several times because there's this uh, amazing country club called Oak Hill. Mm -hmm. they've, I'm pretty sure they've done the PGA Championship a bunch of times. Oh, really? As well as women's majors as well. Yeah. Okay, so the, Rochester is large enough that, that could easily host that many people coming to a tournament. We could use the excitement, if I'm being totally honest. Since I've prepared for this question, mm -hmm. I will tell you that I would like to see a major tournament in South Africa, be it Cape Town or Johannesburg. I'm going with where the black people are, the black and brown people are. I'd like tennis to be exposed to as many people as possible mm -hmm. and, and have it exist outside of its current uh, cocoon, should yes. you say. Yes. I would like to see a big one in Mexico City. I have New Orleans. I have Havana. And Dublin. Dublin does not fit the criteria of black or brown people, but it's somewhere I'd like mm -hmm. to go. Now, could American tennis players go to a tournament in Havana? You see, that is partly why it's on the <laughs> list. <laughs> oh, I like that. Okay, okay. An ATP tournament in Havana. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also, Puerto Vallarta. I went Mexico as well. Mm -hmm. I say Puerto Vallarta because we've just been there and we loved it so much. Not so sure that the infrastructure is there for a major tennis tournament right. at this point. But, you know, this is aspirational. That'd be the perfect vacation for us. Mm -hmm. Well, do the tennis and then stay. <laughs> Let me tell you, that's when you really find out who the gay players are on the ATP tour. <laughs> <laughs> you might see a few out and about. I think it would be cool to have a tournament in the Philippines, in Manila. A few more tournaments in Southeast Asia, I think, would be a boon to the calendar. China is well represented now, especially in the fall, in the WTA Asia swing. But there are a lot of South Asian and Southeast Asian countries that get passed over. Peter at TaiGuy84 asks, 
which ones would you take away? This one's so easy for oh me. I came God. up with three off it's the top so of my easy. head. It would be Madrid, the Paris Masters, and the New York Open. Those are my three. Yes. Uh, Madrid, because if you're a female tennis player, why go where you're not wanted? Jan Tyriak owns that event. Need we say more? So now that we've gotten those two questions out of the way, perhaps you could proffer one that could engage you a little bit better Mm -hmm. with the audience because i'm a little bit concerned right now this question is from skip at blood bay mayor why do you think tennis players are so politically silent compared to athletes in other sports especially the younger crowd this is a great question that i think has a rather complicated answer and i'm going to attempt to answer parts of it for one thing tennis is an individual sport the players are independent contractors They, especially the top players, create these little cocoons, these little entourages that are built completely around them. It's so individualistic and it's about building a personal brand and focusing on your own achievement so much that I think it's hard to to often create a lot of solidarity among players. I think in team sports, when top athletes go out of their way to be political, they often look around and see people who think like them, and will stick their neck out for them in case shit hits the fan. And I think in tennis, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that people don't speak up because they assume others won't back them up. And and it goes on like that. I also think that this this cocoon that we've been speaking a lot of on this episode, Mm -hmm. it begins from such a young age. Your ethos as a tennis person, as a human is being developed from the age of three, four, five years old, where you see just how much is at stake and how much it costs emotionally, physically, financially to become a top tennis player, that I I can understand why you would try and and block out all that other noise. The counter-argument to that is someone like Coco Gauff, who has been refreshingly political as a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. So it can be done. I think the the template has just been followed so to the T by so many players for so long that it's it's difficult for folks to want to venture out of that. And to what end? Why would they do that? Right. Are the risks worth what they feel is the payoff or or their moral kind of obligation to be political? And Serena is somebody who became more political only as she got older, really, as she entered her 30s, when she was much more comfortable as a a person outside of tennis and hugely successful, wealthy. I mean, Serena was not ever apolitical. It's kind of impossible being a Williams sister and being apolitical and ignoring all of these things swirling around you. But she became so much more confident when speaking about social justice issues. You know, this happened, this turned around the same time that Beyonce started doing it, when Black Lives Matter became extremely active and when kind of social justice activism became more visible and more accepted. And so I think you will see a difference with younger players. As the questioner said, like younger players seem to be more reticent and I get that because they're young, they're new to the scene, they're less comfortable, but like Generation Z, at least in the Western world, seems so super politically engaged and have grown up in this Tumblr, Twitter era where they feel emboldened to speak about things. 
Where you can say things like uh, Camila Cabello and then have it come back at you mm. a few years later. Right. But there's a schism between this North American tennis player that we're conceptualizing and so many of the rest of the tennis players from around the world, right? Yeah, so this is somewhere I wanted to go as well. The linguistic diversity, the cultural diversity in tennis, coming from all different countries and backgrounds, the fact that a lot of tennis players did not finish high school, at least in a traditional setting, most did not go to college, sort of their center politically is just so varied. You know, American players, especially American black players, for example, may have a lot of common causes that they feel passionate about. But is there a lot of overlap between maybe a Belarusian white man and a black American woman or a South American woman? Or, you know, I think outside of the workplace, outside of like labor issues, it's hard to find a lot of common causes. I think that's a good segue into Catherine Shaw's question at Perspicacious Sam. Are the platitudinous non-voice voices of the big three in response to Margaret Court and that controversy, the Orwellian ravaging of late capitalism up close? That was a an academically stated question. <laughs> Do you I, want to break it down a little bit? I loved it. I had she, to read it a couple times. Mm, she did actually follow up and clarified, even though I quite enjoyed the wording of the first tweet. It goes on to say, how much do the big players do that we can allow them to corporate speak without disparaging them? And how much are they powerless over the system? Okay, totally got it. For me, this is where it becomes tricky. Because Nadal, Federer, Djokovic have enormous control over the system, in my mind. We're not talking about them coming together and completely upending the way tennis is run. We're talking about whether or not their voices on social issues would cause them blowback to the point where it would be detrimental to their pocket and careers. And for me, the answer is no. Oh, it's, right. a, it's a resounding no. Like if we're talking about maybe, maybe one sponsor would not like something, they can easily recoup that elsewhere. I mean, if you're Roger Federer and you have Rolex and Uniqlo and all these deals, and you're the richest person who's ever existed in tennis, you taking a hard stance against Margaret Court, it's not going to undo any of that. I think Roger's personality is very, very careful. It's basically neutral, it's balanced. For better or for worse, this is who he is, and this is who he's decided to be as a brand. He's not going to alienate people based on his beliefs. I mean, it's not even super clear what his core beliefs are, which is fine, like, public figures don't have to let us in if they don't want to. The The contrast is with someone like Annie Murray, who is not at as elevated a place, but is a, an international superstar, is wealthy, is white, is male, is uh, a hero in his own country, and has not shied away from speaking his mind really at all about issues in Britain, about LGBT issues, about women's sport, etc., like, that is the, the model in, in contrast of this just sometimes bland neutrality from the top three. But the bland neutrality is the point and the goal. That's what we have to understand. <laughs> uh -huh. mm -hmm. You get the sense that if they're asked these questions, they give a response and then their, their main concern is like, did I handle that okay? You know, you mm -hmm. don't want to alienate one person or another. There's this myth of 
two sides, right? And you need to land yeah. somewhere in the middle. There's no room for a nuance in discussing things. And a lot of folks will push back and say, well, it's not really their responsibility. And to them, I would say, if not theirs, then whose? Because they are the ones with the least ramifications that could come their way. And as I mentioned on a previous show, we cannot always rely on people of color by default, and especially women of color, to be the ones to be agitating all the time. They aren't the ones that we should think of as being okay to speak about issues because they are minorities. There, are, there is room for allyship in this scenario. And there are ways to be a good ally. And one of them is not to center yourself, but to uplift other people who don't have the voice to speak for themselves. And on a personal note, because we are, I think, labeled... I've seen it a lot of in a lot of places on the internet as the gay tennis podcast. Fine. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> LGBT issues it's not and queer issues. No. Uh, queer issues are very important to us. And given that they there has never been an openly gay ATP player actively on the on the tennis circuit, it would be incredible for one of these top three guys to be beating that drum to be thinking of the ways in which the ATP tour as it stands could improve itself to make it a more welcoming and logistically friendly, livable space for a would-be out active gay player. We asked Federer what was the reason he thought that there hasn't been an open gay ATP player to date. And his response was, I don't know. I don't know why that is. You're right. Uh, but I have no issue with it. There would be no issue. And we said at the time that that, is, that that was great to hear, right? That kind of affirming support from somebody of Federer's stature is, is something that can only do good. But we need to move past that at this point. Because as much as it's good to have that on record, it's also inadvertently dismissive of some of the minutiae that's needed to be worked on, right? Like that's yeah, a, that's a, that's, ma- a, that's a macro viewpoint. That's a starting place. Yeah. There are lots of micro issues that need to be dealt with that somebody like Federer or Nadal or Djokovic could, could work on. And it doesn't have to be this issue only. No, you know, I'm just it, saying it this is an example. Um, economic justice in tennis, which is something that I think Novak is more attuned to not to say that he knows all of the correct ways to go about achieving it, but I think he's a bit more uh, actively interested. It's something that's on his radar, at least. Yeah. But Catherine's original question was about the court controversy and the answers that were given at the Australian Open, which were disappointing to a lot of us, which were insipid, generally devoid of meaning. And that's, I think, what the question is really getting at. This corporate speak, this nothing speak that we got... It presented two viewpoints. Novak said, I don't agree with her. And that was that was the firmest thing we got. Roger kind of took you through the pros and cons. <laughs> it was, they were just all very weird when it has never been easier to talk shit about Margaret Court. Or in a more serious way, it's never been easier to show your support for LGBTQ people. It's, it's one of those kind of 
cheap political wins. I mean, even Republicans kind of like us now. I don't think it's going to change. It's not going to change with this generation. It's going to take the younger guys, like maybe the Tiafos, the the Ojeelisims. Again, I'm looking at black and brown people here again. Mm-hmm. As much as I said that we don't, we shouldn't rely on them. Well, but when that crop of players get to the top of the sport, that's when I think we can expect a different way of doing business. Right, and I mean not to be cynical here, but if political activism remains able to be leveraged toward profit, you will see Nike sign Colin Kaepernick. You will see sort of political language being used in corporate advertising. Like, politics, counterculture, activism will always be subsumed by capitalism if there is revenue to be found. And you might see that in tennis. You might, in tennis, see these young guys be supported by their sponsors because it is cool or it has cachet. That is the case now. Mm-hmm. But I'm folks, saying if it continues in no, that but direction. This, the, these folks just do not have the will to do it. Yeah. This current crop, that's where it is. And they probably feel that that's not really their market anyway. They're making buku bucks not doing it. Their aesthetic is more... It's more philanthropy rather than activism. All right. Is it my turn to pick a question? Sure. This is from Anna, the artist formerly known as Anna Marseille. Is there anything in tennis you've completely changed your opinion about? Like a thing, incident, rule, person, etc. that you view in a very different light now compared to five to ten years ago? This is hard, but I'll I'll give you one. It's hard for you because your opinions are generally intractable. Oh, that's funny. That's (laughs) hilarious. Victoria Azarenka. When she was a top player, I did not like her one bit i was a detractor this was before we had a podcast this is like 2010 2011 when she first asserted herself man i did not like i didn't like the noise i didn't like the bathroom breaks the noise the noise you know what i'm talking about the grunt yes i'm talking in past tense here okay okay now i'm a huge fan i root for her all the time and I think what it was was the 2013 U.S. Open final is when I finally gained true respect for her. And this may be messed up, but her trials and tribulations are what really made me turn the corner on her. And it makes me feel terrible because someone shouldn't have to suffer for you to feel empathy for them. That, that is really messed up. But it's true. I challenge you to search within yourself and it happens more than we'd like to admit. It's a, I mean, it is a classic sports story. Coaching, I was adamantly against it when this whole thing came about. Now I, I do not care. I don't care. You are not on the same mm-hmm. wavelength as I am. I've been pretty, pretty steady on you that have one. Been. But now it's just like, eh, there's so many other things to be more worked up about for me. Like, I just don't have the bandwidth mm. to be annoyed in any regard about on-court coaching or coaching from the stands that's now implemented especially after we went through the U.S. Open 2018. But as far as players go, I really disliked Steffi Graf up until her retirement because at the onset of my tennis fandom, I was an Arantxa fan. And I lived through those 94 to 96 seasons, and they were Mm -hmm. traumatic. Mm -hmm. Federer? I was not a fan of Federer. No, you were like an anti-fan. That's stating it mildly, and that went on for a long time. 
like you with Vika prior to us having this podcast. Like way back in the day, back in my grad school days, I remember making Microsoft Paint diagrams. One of them was Federer sucks in all <laughs> kinds of like rainbow colors and sending it to my friend who is a huge Federer fan. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, stemmed from me being a Nadal fan at the time and Fedal was at its peak poison, <laughs> really. Right. Like, now we can look back at Fedal and, and appreciate them playing against each other again. And there's a nostalgic element, a non-threatening element as far as the fandoms are concerned. But when it was happening in real time, when Federer's status as unquestioned GOAT was being woodpeckered at. Mm-hmm. It it was fraught for a lot of folks. Oh, and, and so when Federer would lose, it was so joyous for me. <laughs> I've put that kind of thing well, well behind me at this point. Mm-hmm. And I won't go as far as to say I'm a huge fan of Federer, but I enjoy Federer and watching Federer play. And I can appreciate Federer. There's lots about Federer that I can still and do think and talk critically about. <laughs> and we have on this podcast. But it's it's not what it was prior. And another person would be Martina Hingis. Hated Martina Hingis. Mm-hmm. Well, her... I mean, she did not make it easy. No. I don't know if it was the lack of formal education or if it was just the brashness, the, the rudeness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have veered into another question, which was a follow-up by Damien Turbiler. To, it was a follow-up to Anna's question. We have been focusing on uh, a player that we used to hate and now love. And hate is a strong word. I would say dislike. But Anna's question was also addressing uh, incidents, rules, things, events, nouns that are not people, basically. So what you're saying is this is there, this two-pronged question is a little bit mangled at this point. No, well, we've mostly we've focused on people. Yeah. Are there any inanimate things that you've change your opinion on well i talked about encore coaching you haven't i haven't no one thing that i really began to sour on was the endless fifth sets in grand slams outside of the u.s open i did feel it was a purity thing when i was a younger fan i loved that wimbledon could theoretically go on forever and ever and ever isner mau totally smashed that i am all about the tie breaks now. In the year of our Lord, 2020, there's just no reason that one match has to go on for 11 hours. You're sounding positively Rothenbergian right now. No, I still like five <laughs> sets. I still like five set matches. But one of the cool things about tennis, I will admit, is that in theory, a match can go on in perpetuity. Even a tie break can go on forever and ever and ever into eternity. There's something poetic about that. But I like the eternity to have more of a likelihood to end. Do you know what I mean? Especially since you've seen the Good Place finale. Oh, oh, let's not even talk about that. I have another one. And it's more about stuff that we have said on, on the podcast. I feel that we have been way too hard on Chrissy Everett in the past. Earlier in the show, we would talk about commentators. We did an entire episode about, you know, favorite and least favorite commentators. And I think we roasted her a bit, and it wasn't always entirely deserved. Her stature speaks for itself. She, of course, like, she's not 
Darren Cahill as an analyst. I mean, who is? Right. She's not maybe Lindsay Davenport, who seems to have this natural gift for commentary. But she's fucking Chris Evert. Okay. More specifically, I think we were a little bit too strident in, in how we spoke about and rebuked a lot of these tennis commentators. The name of the episode to begin with was called the Tennis Commie Manifesto, Mm -hmm. as if we had all the answers. Well, it was tongue-in-cheek. Sure, but still, to this day I have not gone back and listened to it because I don't even want to know what are the things that we said. And this perspective is coming from a place of having done this show now for five years and understanding how difficult it is to not repeat yourself, how difficult it is to keep things fresh sounding so that people aren't out there saying, oh my God, there they go talking about the same shit again in the same way. It's not easy. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to talk about the same thing in a different way that is still interesting to folks. Right. Without falling into tropes and narratives and rehashing the same thing over and over again. And we have the luxury of edits. Yes. The other thing is that when we did that episode, we did not anticipate the reality that we may someday be in the same room as some of these people and perhaps even speak to some of those people, Mm -hmm. which has happened. Let me tell you, I was... And now gives me extreme (laughs) pause. (laughs) I was damn near shitting my pants when... I, w- I was in Charleston standing with Courtney Nguyen a couple of years ago and Mira Carrillo comes up and I introduce myself and she goes, oh, I know who you are. Mm. And I was like, oh, Lord, fuck, <laughs> this cannot be good. <laughs> I was like, what did I say? What did I say? I, I think I even like went to Twitter and, and looked up my handle and Mira oh, yeah. Carrillo. And so like, like, delete, delete, what delete. What mess did I say? Because for as much as I did and do have a lot of respect for Maricurla, I'm sure there's stuff I said in 2015, 2016 because I could mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. because I had no idea that we would still be sitting here doing this. Right. Like that was not an expectation. That's not what this project was about. I know that as the, the podcast has gone on that we have gotten a little bit nicer mm-hmm. and a little bit more careful. And what's important to me is that we don't trade any of that on authenticity because we're afraid or because it's uncomfortable so when you do hear us speak up about things it's because we're extremely passionate and really believe it it's not performative right and also this coincides with a life change we are in our mid-30s now we have become nicer people i think we have a more reasoned worldview as well like we know that the world is not two extremes that issues are not one thing or the other there are a lot of reasons that drive folks to do things and be the way they are that we may not necessarily understand that that's just the way it is you know right so thanks to anna for i don't know if you anticipated the question going there but it did and there's one other piece from damien that was a follow-up about tennis journalists who we like to read and those who we don't and to be honest, I'm going to skip the, the those we don't. I would I don't know. I just like feel a little mean about that. Some tennis journalists who I love to read, Louisa Thomas, I will always come on the show and talk about her glorious prose from back in the day. Uh, 
Sally Jenkins from Sports Illustrated, who we've read quite a lot about over these some of these research episodes we've done. Obviously, Frank DeFord. But current ones, Steve Tigner, who's written for Tennis Magazine forever, is, is just a, a really skilled writer and a great reporter. I love his work. I will say I do not listen to tennis podcasts as, as a rule. And there are two reasons. One, I honestly don't care for the medium that much. <laughs> what? Which sounds what? terrible. What? I know. It's, Seriously? It's hypocritical. Like, I appreciate it. And I think it's wonderful. And obviously we benefit from it. But it's not something that I enjoy on a day-to-day basis. It's something that has a very specific purpose for me in my life. If we're on a road trip or if I'm in a plane, I will listen to podcasts. But it doesn't work for me in other (laughs) (laughs) facets of life. You know, that's just a personal preference. It doesn't mean that I think podcasts are terrible. I clearly don't. But whereas you will listen to podcasts all the time. Right, and I, I listen to podcasts about all sorts of things. Yes. And specifically with tennis podcasts, the main reason I don't listen to them is I don't want to be inadvertently stealing people's thoughts and intellectual property because that stuff happens so easily, mm-hmm. you know? And so mm-hmm. that's just an extra safeguard for me that I'm not out here, like, stealing people's thoughts and also keeping our stuff as original as we can because it's not entirely 100% possible. Right, right. Oh, some other tennis writers I like, Jerry Nathan and Laura Wagner, both formerly of Deadspin. Jerry has landed at Racket for now, has been writing a newsletter for Racket Magazine, which has been entertaining. And Laura Wagner, I think, is somebody like I evolved on. I grew to really, really like her writing. I was about to say, because there were... That's not my recollection of your relationship. No, you know, there's like like that Deadspin snark Mm -hmm. that... I think if you're not used to it, you have to like get over it or move on. It just might not be for you. I also want to say here, shout out to Courtney Nguyen and her Champions Corner pieces and podcasts. These are ones that I actually do listen to because I appreciate how difficult it is to ask folks interesting questions after they've just won something. Right. And also how difficult it is to ask folks new questions in a way that's fresh and interesting to them. And I think that's something that Courtney does really well. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, it is not always easy to get interesting answers from professional tennis players, no matter how hard you try. So if you hear a very engaging interview, assume that that interviewer has prepared and has done a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. Let's get a few questions in here that won't take as long to answer. What are your bucket list tournaments and why? This comes from Steph in the U.S. I have a lot because we haven't really been to that many tournaments. So Australian Open and Wimbledon are are my dream tournaments. Those are the Grand Slams that I want to get to ASAP. I would love to do like a grass court tour. So we're going to Berlin this year, but I would really like to do the Germany, Netherlands, England grass court swing that happens very quickly at the end of June. You're so full of shit. What? <laughs> you don't want to be in those places and be doing tennis. <laughs> You'll be like, I'm going to be doing all other manner of things than going to tennis at that point. We're talking about tournaments that I want to go to. I want to go to more grass court tournaments. I think we need to accept for ourselves that we are not necessarily the best tennis fans. 
We thought that Rome was going to be a bucket list, and I for sure would have enjoyed it more if you were not there, personally. That's fine. Because you kind of ruined it. <laughs> oh my god. Do you know what ruined it? Uh, one of our days getting completely rained out from morning until night. Listen, I would say that pretty much ruined it no, because there was literally no tennis on one day. You're trying it because the other day, the reason why that was ruined cannot be spoken on these airwaves. So. That's true. But the schedule was actually kind of shitty that day anyway. No, but I would have liked to have enjoyed more than just one set of Nick Curious yeah. in my two we days. We should have just split up then. <laughs> just for the tennis, mm-hmm. to be clear. Yeah. For me, I want to do Wimbledon and test cricket at lords in the same summer that's my dream sporting excursion okay and so if i do make it to wimbledon i need to be taking in some test cricket as well the ever dependable dr shoals with his fuck mary kill which brings us to perhaps the most difficult fmk in his and our history it's called fmk drama kings and the three candidates are nick curios Stefanos Tsitsipas, and Alexander Zverev. Mm-hmm. I can't even believe this is where we are. This decision, there are no good options, really. I think we have to uh, contact Canada Post and rescind Shola's uh, <laughs> postcard that we sent. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so let me go first. I've, I've thought about this, and I'm confident. I'm going to kill Zverev, because, quite frankly, I'm not attracted to him. I don't really like him that much. And... I don't find him all that interesting. I would marry Stefanos because he seems like a nice enough guy. He does seem like he likes a lot of alone time, which is ideal for me. And I would F Kyrgios just because I don't want to go into too much detail. I'm not actually <laughs> I'm not actually into him at all. But there is a there is like an energy there. You know what I mean? There's an unquantifiable, unqualifiable energy that I do not see. Uh, that you do, apparently. Oh, oh, okay. But I mean, of the three, like, we've only been given these three options. Mm-hmm. Well, mine's different. I certainly don't want to marry him. I would marry Stefanos Tsitsipas because at this point I have wanderlust. And I feel that with his aspirations as a, a vlogger, a cinematographer... And seeing the world. Mm-hmm. Golf that, cart driver. Yeah. Stefanos can take me places. He can go video things and I can go enjoy myself. I'll see the world with Stefanos. He will give mm-hmm. me that. Yeah. Yeah. I will F Alexander Zverev because, again, with these scenarios, it's not like a repeated effing. It's like, <laughs> I assume it's a one-time thing. I could do worse. Okay. You know, we could both just cut our losses when it's done and <laughs> move on. Right. And I would kill Kyrgios because there's just too much uncertainty mm. with what I would be expecting from him on a minute-to-minute basis. <laughs> and So you need some more surety in your I life. I do. And so I'd just be done with that. Mm-hmm. I, I would be eager to hear everyone else's. So please spam us with your selections. Listen, I feel like everybody's going to be out here marrying Stefanos. I don't know. I feel like that's I don't know. the easiest part he of it. He does have some anger problems. Don't they all? Indeed. Okay, this question is for Jonathan. Why are you so bossy and domineering to James? I want to know. And who is asking? It's, it was submitted anonymously. Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
wow, I can't believe, but you know, the fans are really sticking up for me these days. I feel so supported and loved. Um, okay, no, I do actually have a question. No, but I would like to answer that. No. <laughs> I would like to answer that. You would like to stand and face your accuser? I would like to let my accusers know a thing mm-hmm. or two. Yeah, because they're legion at this point. That James is a little bit haphazard, unfocused, and somebody has to whip him into shape mm-hmm. on occasion. I and do also, feel that this is victim blaming and a bit <laughs> inaccurate because I had to remove some factually incorrect statements that you made on the last episode that will never see the light of day. Mm-hmm. And if you were to reflect upon yourself, as you've directed us all to do on this show mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. today, the ratio of your errors to mine, what would that look like in the history of this show? Mm-hmm. Do you realize you're not really helping your case right now I by re- going on the attack? I realize that I'm in a lose-lose situation <laughs> and that if the net effect is a banter that's still enjoyable to folks i will take that loss oh how selfless wow i am the asshole apparently i'm just gonna have to own it i was gonna be nice to you but then you did this so Uh, yep sounds sounds like a lot of abusive language there the actual question that i was going to ask is from fabian what do we expect from kleister's return and because this is really uh, the only time-sensitive and topical question I think we're going to mm-hmm. to answer on this episode. We watched that match. You were editing the last episode while that match was going mm-hmm. on. Kim Kleisters faced Garbini and Muguruza in the first round of the Dubai tournament. Muguruza eventually winning 6-2-7-6. Muguruza was up 6-2, double break, 3-love, before Kleisters forced a second set tiebreak. Muguruza also served for the match at 5-4 in the second set. That's when I went to shower to go to work. And then I came back downstairs, getting ready to go out the door, and we were in the middle of a tiebreak, and I, I turned to you and said, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> <laughs> right. The first set from Kim was, was a welcome sight. People were remarking how cleanly she was hitting the ball, how she, she really looked like herself. Obviously... She's not as quick, she's not as sharp, she's rusty, but there were a lot of Kleisters-isms that you could see on court. Those lunging forehands, the sort of semi-splits. The worry for Kim coming back at such a big tournament and obviously having to play somebody really good right off the bat, and she got one of the hottest players on tour. The Australian Open finalist, a resurgent Muguruza, who is playing deep into every tournament in 2020. The risk was that she would embarrass herself. And what would that mean for her comeback going Mm -hmm. forward? And it was the complete opposite. And and that, despite the loss, is a massive win. Because she went down big and fought her way back. Not because Muguruza was making terrible errors or playing badly, but because Kim found extra gears. She was able to have her game click and find semblances of her former glory. Yeah. And we saw how that still plays well in today's game. You know, what do we expect for her comeback going forward? It'll take uninterrupted play. It'll take being injury-free. It'll take improved fitness. Yes, she is slower than she was before, but her ground game is still there. And she can she can improve with her, her fitness and her movement. That's something that she has absolute control over, right? Mm-hmm. And dare I say, 
her footwork for her first tournament back was pretty damn good. Right. She. This is a great scenario for her. Playing the runner-up at the Australian Open, Garbinia is at a much higher level than she was last year. I think if Kim had met Garbinia last year, Kim would have won this match. Going forward, like you said, injuries are always going to be a concern at her age, even if she's supremely fit and training in a smart way and, and playing a smart schedule. You never know. You really never know what can happen over the course of this season. Do I think she can win a tournament? Yeah. I think she can have a good run or two at a major, definitely. Because Kim is one of the great talents of the past 20 years, bar none. Like, there are so few players who have natural gifts like she does. I'm just excited to watch it unfold. And I think what Kim has that a lot of the WTA Top 20 doesn't is she knows how to win. I think she plays a game that a lot of the younger players have imitated, and she is still the best at it. Our knight, 112, Arun, asks, what would you like to see in the future as far as clothing kits? What I'd like to see in kits going forward, shorter shorts and more fitted kits on the men's side. On the men's side. On the men's side. I do not have opinions as to what I want to see on the women's side. I am not one of those gays. I've said that before. (laughs) I'm not out here critiquing runways and red carpets. It's not my thing. Nor do I think it's my place, frankly. But you can offer an opinion without objectifying women. You know, you can be interested in in fashion and design. Yeah, but I also don't know, like, what different cuts are. Right, right. Fair enough. Like, I just don't know. I know what a pencil skirt is. They're not wearing pencil (laughs) skirts on the tour. That's a start. I would love to see Puma become a factor in tennis clothing again on both the women's and men's side. And I would like to see Serena go back to Puma if that ever happens. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I would love to see more adventurous kits from Lacoste, which is such a gorgeous classic brand. But I think they put out a lot of boring looking kits for boring looking guys. And I would like to add, Philo should do better than to just sign every 10 foot tall American (laughs) to look like a sloth in their clothes. Like, that's just all I'm going to say on that. On the, on the women's side, Fila is doing amazing, sweetie. Mm-hmm. They've got some huge players signed up to them, and they're designing nice kits. Some of the men's clothing would actually look good if, like, a regular person were wearing it. <laughs> like, you're doing a poor job in selling your product. I just, I do not get it. It's so it's, perplexing It's Diego me. at 5'6", or Isner at 7'6". Exactly. I would like to see Prince. When Nike did that uh, that line at Roland Garros the with the skulls one, and the yeah. skeletons, I absolutely love that. And even Nike's prints at the Australian Open, it was very hit and miss. There was a lot of like, it looked like a Holstein cow. There were some kind of pock marks on some of them. But I appreciate the effort. I really do. Ali at Lee underscore tennis asks, what changed for both of you and what was reaffirmed regarding your thoughts on Monica Seles? before and after you did the research for your podcast. Mm-hmm. It's tough. I learned a lot. It was mostly a learning experience for me. I knew kind of the basics. I knew the milestones of Monica's career. What changed for me is that I just developed a more rounded and human understanding of Monica, but also was able to to acknowledge that I don't know her and we will never ever know these famous athletes. We'll never understand what really makes them tick. We sort of have to acknowledge that 
even in these autobiographies, they're telling you a version of themselves that they want to present. That self-presentation in many ways is self-preservation for somebody who has suffered in such a public way. The thing that I, I learned most was a better appreciation for Monica's second career. That's really all I knew of Monica. And so my only frame of reference was to hold her results from 1995 onward against what I could read on paper prior to that. And obviously they fall short. But when you go and you do the research and you see the quality of opponent that she was playing, you watch her matches and you see what she was still able to do on court, and you see the incredible consistency that she she turned out week in and week out. Her second career was extraordinary in its own right. It's now my opinion that it's unfair to her to look at her second career as some sort of failure because she did not do what she did before. Mm-hmm. One more thing that I we touched on in the episode, but I wanna I've been thinking about it more now that we're done with it. You know, we talked a lot about kind of giving players a break and just trying to understand that they are human and they're new at this and they're making mistakes and just trying to like get by like anyone they're just trying to be human and live their lives and this relates to what i said about azarenka how i was unforgiving and i I didn't really like her earlier in her career and it took just a lot of personal difficulties that she went through for me to turn the corner and that's so unfair right so doing the cells episode challenged me to try to give everybody a break when they're in a place where maybe you necessarily don't like their attitude or you find them arrogant or annoying or whatever. Like, just understand that these people are not evil. They're just kind of flawed like the rest of us. With the exception of men being out of pocket because we should always hold them to a higher standard than society does. Yeah. That's the one caveat. Yes, but my point was like that Monica was roasted so badly by the press for things that now feel so minor. Well, consider that folks are like, well, she can't win back-to-back tournaments. Like, she's winning a tournament this week and falling out in the first round the next week. Like, Monica made pretty much the quarterfinals of every tournament she played. Mm -hmm. You know, like, the consistency was astounding. Mm -hmm. So, like you said, we can be pretty rough on some of these players, especially the young male players and Fabio and people like that. I don't know like where the balance is, is maybe like not extrapolating who they are as people, you know, like calling out the the offense, but not making it like this is who this person is, mm. you know. This is a good segue into another question, and I hope I'm pronouncing this properly, Sanifu Africa, at Africa Sanifu. The question is, without getting into too much detail, what do y'all think most of us who don't have a behind-the-scenes access to tennis would be shocked by, specifically stuff that an uncredentialed person wouldn't be privy to. And my response to this question is simply the humanity of it all, from the sheer breadth of volunteers across all facets of event management that it takes to put on a tennis tournament and interacting with those people, from the person who checks you in in the media credential office to the person who is giving you notes about the matches that day in the press room to the folks who are bringing in food for media who are manning the elevator (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. there's so many people behind the scenes who make sure everything runs smoothly and then also to that end the humanity of the players like you were talking about i'll never forget 
being out on one of the outer courts when I first saw Arena Sabalenko a couple, a year and a half ago, I guess, in Cincinnati, and she was playing Caroline Garcia. Mm-hmm. And Garcia was up in that third set and was like, okay, that looks, that looks to be in the bag. And then a little while later, I see her in the, in the stairwell that connects the player lounge to like the locker room area to the media center. Like there, there are four floors, right? And so you going up and down the stairs, you, you walk past players all the time. And she was in the very bottom, the basement area. And she looked completely gutted. And I was like, well, why girl you just won Mm. and then i checked my phone i was like well damn she lost this match and i'm now privy to this intimate moment that it's it's difficult to 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 put a value on like what it means do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. it was i felt like it was an invasion even though it was a a semi-public place like i wasn't actively trying to intrude on that private moment but it was you see it you know yeah and so you see all these would-be private moments behind the scenes at a, at a tennis tournament that you would not see as a fan. And it, it gives you pause. And it gives you a moment to appreciate that there is so much more to the experience for these players than just wins and losses. Mm-hmm. I would say th- how mundane the whole experience becomes and how normal it is. I expected when I went into this the first few times that I would be completely starstruck and it would be really difficult to do and nerve-wracking and it's amazing how quickly you switch into work mode and how the journalists there are just not starstruck at all by top players you as you said you see them in the stairwell you see them in private moments vulnerable moments they feel much more down to earth when you're there and it does help you do your job but i was just surprised at how familiar the whole thing is i expected kind of this dais and like a phalanx of reporters. And it's really a lot a lot more interactive than I expected. I'm sure at major tournaments, it's a lot different. Mm-hmm. But in Cincinnati, which is a master's tournament, there was a lot of kind of collegiality between players and reporters that I didn't actually expect. A bit of insight that gives a little bit of perspective to the Ash Barty baby thing in Australia. The players dictate the feeling and the tenseness in the room. Yeah. It's yes. almost entirely in their control. When Petra Kvitova comes in and she's like, hi guys. And she's smiling and she's walking up to the to the, the podium. Like that is her MO. You know, like that mm-hmm. is, that's Petra. It's a, it's a low-key casual affair. Let's do this. Let's have a good time. You know, when somebody has a bad loss and they come into press, it can be like cutting tension with a knife. Mm-hmm. When Venus comes into press... You don't know what you're going to get. It it takes a few brave souls to see, you know, what is she going to give us today? I've long kind of joked that I may be the last person to make Venus laugh in press. (laughs) In Charleston 2017, (laughs) I think, when I asked her about, you know, if she's always on guard with Serena around her with social media, Mm -hmm. with some, you know putting her out there in some messy situation. Yeah, and this was the era of where are your pants. Yes. Hmm. But, you know, you just, you never know what you're going to get. A lot has happened in that time with Venus and... and The press. The press. And so it's often fraught. And so the tenor of those situations are different. The point here is, A, players dictate the tenor of those press conferences a lot. And B, you really don't know what they're like until you're in there. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So like we we had a lot of opinions about press conferences and folks still have opinions about press conferences, but the actual feeling of being in press conferences and experiencing this potpourri of outcomes and <laughs> feelings and tensions and reading the room, it's, and, uh, it's totally different yeah, unless and, you're there. And kind of micro decisions. Yeah. If you're a reporter, the player really does set the tone. They're like the teacher in the classroom. And so if you get a player who doesn't have a particularly dominant or strong personality, it can be weird or it can be awkward or, or the conversation is slow to start. A couple more tennis related questions before we get into the Mariah and the diva mm-hmm. question, which is really the highlight of the show. Yeah, we're going to leave it to the end so you can skip it if you're not interested. <laughs> you have the power to change one thing about Grand Slam tournaments. What would you change? That's from Francis at Francis Munn. I have one. What mm-hmm. you go Which first? Which uh, I feel like there's a bunch of stuff. I would work on the scheduling, which I know has a lot of challenges and a lot of vested interests fighting for scheduling. But I would like a little more equity as far as that is concerned. The change that I would make is a total restructuring of the prize money situation and the prize money allocation. I would. Bernie Sanders the shit out of that. (laughs) Are you saying you would like a first round loser to win the same as the champion? (laughs) Bernie Sanders has three homes. Did you hear? I did. Yeah. 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 So how can you be a democratic socialist and have a camp in Vermont? Huh? I do not need you I want to be very clear that I I don't believe that, what I just said. But but I'm also not a Bernie bro. I know. I know. I don't want folks to be thinking that either. Like that's let's leave that out of this. <laughs> Even though I brought it into you, the you fold. brought it up. I did. Oh, I feel this mm-hmm. like film of filth over mm-hmm. me now. I mean, ideally, I would like the people who clean the stadium, who take tickets, to make a, a livable and indeed a, a competitively wealthy wage. Yeah, I would like you to not be rewarded with just tickets. To someday that you're not yeah. volunteering. <laughs> yeah. I would like people who are in qualifying to make more money. I would like first to fourth round players to make more money. That the champion makes $4 million is entirely too T-E-W, too much. When folks are out here struggling. like It's, it's the, just like not necessary. It's so unnecessary. Because a lot of it is just showboating. It is. That because so they can say this is the biggest check in the history of Grand Slam Tennis and you know, it's, it's just sort of ridiculous. It's a perpetual cycle of whipping your dick out and measuring it. Oh my That's what goodness. It is. That's there what could it is. be children listening. And if they are, this is an important lesson to learn. <laughs> because uh, this kind of greed at the top. <laughs> yes. Greedy tops. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to feed the bottoms better. Oh, wow. <laughs> I am dumbfounded. Can we move on? To the next question, please. Yes. How important do you think tennis Twitter is to the success of the sport? If suddenly this website shut down, would the fandom thrive in Instagram or forums or fan podcasts? This is from At The Swing Volley. I like this question. It made me think a lot. I believe that we probably overestimate the influence of tennis Twitter because we're a part of it. And I think that's true for politics and entertainment and even uh, like the oscars right twitter feels like the center of the universe when you're on it but 
a lot of regular folks I just do not know the conversations that are happening on Twitter. And for a lot of tennis fans, they probably have never used the app, are not interested, do not know all the warring fandoms and all that. Is Karen, who's wearing her $300 kit that she just bought to the tennis tournament, sitting in the corporate box, is she on Twitter? Does she know the conversations we're having? Does all she the care? Shit talking? Does she care? There are many Karens. We all know. the grievances. We know yeah. there are many Karens. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, I agree with you. I think that the importance that we feel as being part of tennis Twitter is overstated. That said, we would not be here where we are as a podcast without tennis Twitter. Right, right. So it has its utility and we have made as much of it as we can. Mm-hmm. But in the grand scheme of things, to the survival of the sport, tennis would be like, you had a cute run. Oh yeah, like the sport as a whole. Yeah, I... Like you said, this is an incredible medium and it has the potential of creating a vibrant community, which it has done. It can foster conversations that you do not hear on Tennis Channel, ESPN, in any of the mainstream publications. We see that every day. And we also see that we have been driving some of the conversations, not we as in us personally, but increasingly some of the things that we've been railing against on Tennis Twitter have made it to the public realm. Right, right. But then that too doesn't have much utility. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> no, but you also see mainstream news sources scrape podcasts and scrape yes. social media for mm-hmm. content mm-hmm. without credit, of course. Of course. I don't think we've reached that level that we're being. No. Uh, <laughs> but, but some of our, the only time our it, podcast the only time friends it, yeah. are. The only time it happened was when we asked Federer about the the prospect of an openly gay tennis player and we'd see stuff reported places and without any accreditation as to where and who asked the mm-hmm. question that's the only yeah. time make no mistake though tennis journalists are taking cues from tennis twitter they tennis twitter informs some of the questions that they ask some of the topics that they are interested in and that they're forwarding in press conferences i don't believe the margaret court questions would have such urgency and such belief without the noise coming from tennis Twitter. I sincerely believe that. If Twitter ceased to exist, and you know, someday it will, will it migrate? Will the fandoms migrate? And I think the answer is yes, but being um, a media studies person like myself, the medium is the message. So the, the nature of this community is going to change based on the form, based on the medium that it it lands in. So, you know, the content coming out of forums and Instagram and stuff is going to be very, very different. And that's informed by the medium itself. So, like, I feel like Twitter, I found the place that suits me best. So if Twitter kind of became not cool or didn't exist anymore, I don't know how, how I would live in, like, a TikTok world. You know what I mean? You'd wake up and make your crackers and drink your coffee. Make my crackers? <laughs> I don't know. Or in this case, your Chips Ahoy cereal. Mm. You just nibble on that all day and deal with it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm not saying it's the end of the world, but I'm saying that fandom and conversation and even activism looks different based on the medium. I think that you would find a different outlet. Yes. It might not have the same gravitas or the same... 
reach as Twitter, as tennis Twitter, as it's taken this time to cultivate the reach and uh, import mm-hmm. that it has. But you'd start from the ground up again. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah. People And people have done that. Yeah. People older than us. Tennis forums. People were out on chat rooms, tennis forums before, before Twitter happened, they migrated. It'll, you know, it'll just change. Mm-hmm. If you don't have plans for a sister podcast on culture and entertainment, can you tell me about your favorite pods in those spaces? This comes from at Miller Graham. Graham Miller. Yes. We mentioned earlier that we don't listen to a lot of sport podcasts or tennis podcasts, but I'm a I'm a huge podcast fan. One of my faves is This American Life, which is kind of I feel the the original the Ur podcast. Not really a pop culture entertainment podcast, but I like Hit Parade, which is from Slate. A guy named Chris Melanthi, I think his name is, is a chart scholar, basically. Mm-hmm. So he does theme episodes about the history of the Billboard charts. He's done stuff about the British New Wave. He's done one on Woodstock, about Mariah Carey's Christmas. What are some other ones that I liked? He Can did I- one about... Basically, Madonna's entire career, Elton John, and he has really a holistic view of the charts and an artist's career. It's fascinating. Okay. I listen to these podcasts because you are the curator of our podcast when we're doing road trips, when we're traveling back to Rochester for visits and what have you. Mm-hmm. I find Hit Parade boring. And you... Okay. You tried to really get me on board with the Mariah Christmas stuff, and there was literally... Nothing that I found informative on. Okay, wow. He did do a follow-up uh, that expanded on Mariah's career that was very cool. Oh, it was? And it had a guest. It wasn't just Christmas stuff. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying I'm going to listen to that mm. one and maybe I'll change my mind? Maybe. I want to say that it's been well over a year now, but I tried, folks, I tried to get us to branch out and have a sister podcast, a pop culture podcast, and I pitched it. I came up with names. I, I even had a pitch for the first episode, which would have been a, a deep dive into the boy's mind and the Brandy Monica feud, rivalry, sisterhood <laughs> that could have been. And I was told that the bandwidth did not have room. No, I would love to do it, but who I do not have time to do it well. Like we we do the body serve Almost every week or every other week. It's a lot. It is. I'm just saying I thought it was something that we tried. It would I be tried. fun. I it tried. would be fun. I'm just putting that out there. Okay. Other other ones that I like, you must remember this, which is kind of a one-woman band. Karina Longworth has done 156 episodes already about old Hollywood mostly. She does reenactments, voiceovers, just such a talented storyteller that one is so worth checking out i enjoyed the dolly parton yes podcast dolly parton's america which i think we still have a few more to listen to we do dolly parton is infinitely fascinating to me mm-hmm. save for the mammies that she's selling in dollywood <laughs> <laughs> which is covered on the podcast obviously the read yes. of course the read is one of those is really one of those signpost podcasts one of the podcasts that has come to define this this medium. They are incredible. They're fearless. And we've probably borrowed a lot of stuff from mm-hmm. them. Yeah. I do want to say that 
and I'm giving you a platform here because you want to do like a Dare Debbie, Dare Susan, what is it? Dare Abby? Yes. You've long wanted to do a Dare Abby segment and also like that segment on the read where folks submit questions. The, the reader letters. Oh the my reader God. letters. You want to do something like that on our show. Yes. And our friend Meg really, really wants to come on if we ever do an advice column section. And so if there is an appetite for that, we would love to do it. We'd like to hear from you. And you would send us stuff. We could do it anonymously. Mm -hmm. Create a burner email account. We don't even have to know it's you. You know, like, exactly. Create a burner account. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the mess in your life. And we will give or... (laughs) I I love this. I... Believe it or not, we are very non-judgmental when it comes to people's personal lives. I think so. I think that's Mm -hmm. true. Uh, I would be excited to see where it could go. Yes. Uh, So again, let us know if you're into that, because we would be. And we listen to What's the Tea as well. What's the Tea? They have audio issues. Yeah, they need to fix their levels. But... They get amazing guests. They get a lot of, obviously, a lot of drag race girls coming on, but if, a lot of other famous, interesting people. If you can get past RuPaul's pull yourself up by the bootstraps, Ooh, girl. self-help bullshit. There is a lot of self-improvement bordering on rugged individualism mm-hmm. going on. But when RuPaul is legitimately tickled by something mm-hmm. and he has to kind of pull away from the mic and just cackle for a minute. It's some of the best minutes I've yeah. spent in my life. It's it's hard not to, His to laugh, laugh along with him. is incredible. Mm. If you want kind of a taste, Michaela Cole was on recently. That was very funny. Sierra and Casey Musgraves were guest judges on Drag Race recently. That's definitely worth checking out. So I hope that answers your question, mm-hmm. Graham. And this brings us to our final bit where we get to wax poetic about Mariah, Whitney, and Aretha. Mm-hmm. Which, okay. if you know from my Twitter bio, that's my holy trinity. That's, that's the trinity. That's my holy trinity. Someone in our email asked us the question about what are our favorite Mariah songs. And, and we say someone because we don't know, if, don't you know if, if you right. want to be anonymous or not. If, you know, if we publish this and you say, why don't you mention my name? We'll mention it next time. Just didn't want to do it without permission. Asking what our favorite Mariah songs are is a Pandora's box. We could do an entire two-hour show about this. So we're going to move through it fairly quickly. And then Vern Jones asked if we could choose only one Mariah, Whitney, and Aretha song. So can I start? Because you're you're the Mariah expert. So can I just go through my Mariah songs quickly? Sure. And then I'll give my one. at the. I'll reveal okay. my one. Okay. So Mariah songs that I love. My my short list. Can't Let Go. That Keith Sweat Even sample. Even though you try. That Keith Sweat sample is genius. And it deserved a number one. It is such a smooth, chill, quiet storm song. I absolutely adore it. From Butterfly. Butterfly is my favorite album, period. Like by anyone. Ever? It's, it's the greatest gift I've ever given to you. Yeah. Because when we met in 2007, you did not know. I knew, of knew course, of I knew singles. a lot of the songs, You knew right? the singles, but you didn't know about Butterfly. But as a cohesive work of art. Mm-hmm. So, and to this day, you can't really listen. To, we both have songs on that, al- on that album that we cannot listen to really anymore. 
you can't listen to Butterfly because I was your butterfly when we were doing long distance. <laughs> please, you know, can you leave some things as a mystery, please? No, and but I, and I can't listen to Outside anymore because that got me through what I need to, needed to get through, and I've made it to the oh, other yeah. side, and I don't need to go back. I there. think it got a lot of people through. Mm-hmm. But if I'm to pick a song from Butterfly, I love as far as like a deep cut, Baby Doll, because mm-hmm. it is just a. A beautiful display of those lush, complex 1990s R&B vocals. Those layered vocals, I adore it. And related, my favorite deep cut of the post-emancipation era is Candy Bling. Because you're giving us brandy. You're giving us 90s R&B. These vocals that probably took 10 different takes in the studio to layer on top of each other absolutely gorgeous low-key r&b song Mm -hmm. love it that's been the story of mariah's latest career giving us the quality great r&b when nobody Mm -hmm. wants it Mm -hmm. and they don't deserve it and then finally before we get to our one my last one is fly like a bird her best gospel song this authentic kind of contemporary gospel she wasn't trying to be too pop or anything that was pure church that hammond organ everything absolutely adore the song and it cuts off exactly where it's supposed to on a whistle tone are you done yes what's your favorite song of all time mariah you said you were going to give it yes so my one song if i were to say you know to someone who'd never heard mariah this is who she is i know what it's gonna of course you know what it is it's always be my baby for a number of reasons I think uh, a lot of what defined Mariah's early career is perfectionism. And Always Be My Baby, to me, is her most perfect pop song. It, it is perfectly written, recorded, everything about it. It feels out of time. It feels nostalgic. It is an earworm. It's light, but it makes you feel something like it's... There are so few perfect pop songs out there, and Mariah has several of them. But that's the one I pick, because it means a lot to me. But it is just, it's a confection. But you hadn't met me yet. Oh, huh. <laughs> like, it's a pop confection, but it is so masterfully done. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mariah's early career was defined by perfectionism. That's where, like, everything was firing at the highest level. I have a difficult and fraught relationship with a lot of Mariah's iconic, most well-known songs. Like, I murdered them in my eardrums so much (laughs) as an adolescent that they no longer, try as I might, strike the same chord. Mm -hmm. And so that dissonance between what I think of the song intellectually and what I feel is not something I can overcome. So for me, Always Be My Baby is not one of my favorites. Okay. Anymore. Fine. I gravitate toward deeper cuts. I gravitate toward the R&B side of things. I gravitate toward vocal performances that make me feel something. In no particular order, off the Daydream album, Melt Away is just Mm -hmm. R&B perfection. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's aptly titled. You just melt away into the song and you just flow. It's like you just... That feeling of being in the ocean where the tide is gentle and you just lay on your back and let it flow. Like, that's what that song feels like. I move to the 
motion of the ocean. <laughs> but it's probably like her best display of the lower register too. Yeah. I mentioned Outside. That song is incredible. And I want to shout out Butterfly. I know everybody says it's her best album, and it absolutely is. But we do not give her enough credit for creating an album in the midst of her own personal and professional turmoil, where she was married to the head of Sony Music in the process of divorcing him. After having lived through all that turmoil, he's now looking for a new Mariah. And there's all this shady shit going on behind the scenes. She's being sabotaged. And she decides not only is she going to make a total break in the direction of her career and do the music that she wants to do, but she's going to release the first single with a video that's clearly depicting Tommy Mottola in a negative light, <laughs> taking a dig at him. And she's going to do the R&B music that she wants to do. And to that end, Breakdown, I think, is her most perfect song. Mm. I think it's mm -hmm. lyrically mm -hmm. genius. When you think about what she's saying and how it flows over the melody, she's sing-rapping alongside Bone Thugs and Harmony like it ain't no thing in 1997. People take that shit for granted. Like it, She makes things look so easy that other folks would never dare to do. Her influence is... Ugh, mm -hmm. it's it's I can't I but like, can't even know what to say. <laughs> her intonation on the song, the way that she imitates their mm -hmm. style, is unbelievable. Her ear for yeah. music is so underrated. Oh, and she also fell out with her creative partner mm -hmm. Walter Afanasiev during yep. the production of Butterfly, and still got a number one out of my all, even though he says that song was incomplete because they didn't mm -hmm. quite finish it. Because they broke up. Yeah. Like, girl, this she ain't... She's just fine. This ain't Diane Warren shit, okay? Like, this is R&B. Sometimes you need to dial back the orchestration. The one low note for me on that album is Whenever You Call. Sorry. But, but, the duet with Brian McKnight is really nice. Yes. It's not on the album, though. Mm -hmm. I think her remakes are incredible. Some that folks might not know about off the Glitter soundtrack, the much maligned Glitter soundtrack... Her cover of Last Night at DJ Save My Life, mm -hmm. love it. It's so R&B, sexy, smooth, roller rink. <laughs> yeah. Realness. I also love Bringing On The Heartbreak. This, this is, is one of those Charm songs. Bracelet, Charm Bracelet. Right? This is one of those songs that apropos of nothing, I could be watching a TV show and all of a sudden it just pops in my head. And I'm just like, yeah, bringing on the heartache. <laughs> it just happens. Mm. Her other cover, and probably the one that I enjoy the most, is I Want to Know What Love Is. Vocally, it's not necessarily her best performance. There's a lot of vocal stitchery at the end. <laughs> but it's like the biggest single in Brazilian history. Right? Out of nowhere. Um. <laughs> like she could tour forever in Brazil because of the song. But I absolutely love it. It also has one of the worst videos that she's ever made in her career. But but best. But best. It because is it's camp beyond. Yeah. Like. It has gay rights in it. Mm -hmm. It has green screen. Like when she goes, oh, like I want to mock it <laughs> and love it at the same time. I it, it is camp perfection, that song. I Stay In Love, one of her best R&B gems that mm -hmm. she's ever made. Candy Bling is on my list. Fly Like a Bird is on my list. Her Grammy moment with Fly Like a Bird. Ugh, such a fuck you. 
Mm-hmm. They still didn't give her the Grammys that she deserved. Of that course night. not. Like, listen, Mariah Carey made Daydream and ruled the pop charts for 18 months with that album and got zero Grammys. That is one of the mm. greatest travesties and biggest black marks on that organization that there okay, is. Okay, but we get to 2006 and We Belong Together. You want to talk about a perfect pop song. That, it's infallible. Yes. Uh, For me, and now We Belong Together is my answer to You'll mm. Always Be My Baby. Even if, like... It's one of those songs, like, even if you don't like it, you have to look at the production, the songwriting, the vocals, everything. Like, it is, it's almost unassailable. And the remix is... Mm -hmm. And these days, the Grammys are awarding pop songs. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was not fashionable, but... And then, going back to her early career, Vanishing, some might say overwrought, I say just enough. Looking In is so vulnerable... And the only time, to my knowledge, that she's ever performed it live, she did it with a broken elbow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And she could barely get through the song because she was so emotional. And I listened to that rather than mm. the, the album track. If it's over, come on. Okay, look up the SNL performance of that song. And look up the Grammy performance of that mm. song. Look up any performance of that song. That's a real professional shit right there. Doesn't none of these girls today can do that. And finally, anytime you need a friend, I will be there. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you think it's just a run-of-the-mill pop song, and then you realize you have been taken to church, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm in rapture. The, that song is incredible. So those are those are some of my favorites. Mm. I know it's a lot. It's I know an this was this was an abridged version. I mean, I only picked four. I picked a lot. I just couldn't mm. not not pick those songs yeah and if i had to pick one i'm gonna cheat and it's gonna be a live performance because again with that theme of what resonates her bet tribute to stevie wonder singing you and i that is where she makes the most use of her lower register in her entire career and it is incredible i challenge Uh, you to look that up on the internet yeah also a stream talking book by talking book by Stevie Wonder. Download it, whatever you need to do. Mystical Stevie Wonder, early 1970s. That shit will blow your mind. You're not even ready. I believe when I fall in love, it will be forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the counter melodies at the end of that song. Girl. If you want to know about that song, Barack and Michelle danced to that song at their wedding. Yeah, you and I, not. Yeah, and that's before... Well, I guess they did it before it was our song, but we learned of that after it was already our song. And the story behind that is that we were driving down 96B in Ithaca, New York, one of our first dates, and you started playing in your car on your your CD player mm-hmm. Stevie's, ta- version, Stevie's of version of You and I from Talking Book. And at that point, keep in mind, 2007, YouTube was very new. I hadn't even started using it yet. A lot Mm. of these videos and performances that we take for granted weren't on YouTube yet. And so the only time I'd heard that song was watching Mariah perform that on that BET special while I was living in Jamaica. And I was like, I know that song. I love that. I've heard it before. And it's like, Mm. Mariah sang that song. And so then I went and looked it up and I was like, wow, this is a gateway into Stevie Wonder for me. Mm -hmm. You gave me Stevie Wonder, I gave you Mariah Carey. Well, you didn't give me Mariah Carey. I give you She was my first cassette tape in 1990, okay? Okay. (laughs) Whatever. Your stand-up was not where Mm -hmm. it is now. 
No, I, I right. gave you Mariah Carey, yeah. you gave me Stevie Wonder. Wow, what a moment. A moment most pleasing to me in Whitney's career, which is the segue. <laughs> We're supposed to pick one song from Whitney and one from Aretha. So let me go. Let me go quickly. Okay. My favorite song by Whitney, How Will I Know? Mm-hmm. She is playing with you on that song. She's playing all over that song. She's been giving a pop song that a lot of girls could sing and it is bursting at the seams with her voice. She's having so much fun with it. There's so much depth. Like the the incredible scope of her talent is it's just like overflowing off this song that feels like a trifle and then you listen to it a million times and you realize it's not that is gorgeous as far as aretha my favorite song thanks to you i know her cover of a bridge over troubled water you know she's aretha franklin it's 1971 she's covering one of the most successful singles in history at that point that was only a couple years right and she and she decides to open the first 90 seconds with an organ solo that she plays herself Mm -hmm. i mean and just the rest of the song absolutely perfect i couldn't pick just one from aretha so the other is when she sits down to the piano and opens i never loved a man the way i love you the piano riff changed music forever that and that's not an overstatement aretha sitting down at the piano recording that album in 1967 changed everything so go listen to it okay I have maybe an unpopular opinion about Whitney. I adore Whitney. Adore Whitney. Yeah, that's not unpopular. That's not unpopular. I love Whitney. I love her, but I'm not over here putting on her records. I don't really mm-hmm. like listen to her records to jam to it. How will I know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. But for me personally, I've always loved Whitney's live stuff more than her recorded stuff. Mm-hmm. Her one moment in time live on the Grammys, mind blasting. (laughs) Like it's just a woman at her absolute best in her pump, showing off and showing out. And so my favorites of hers, she did that live uh, concert for the troops thing in the early 90s. And she sits there in a green, bright green jumpsuit as she was wont to do at the time. (laughs) And goes off and sings a seven-minute version of A Song for You. And it features one of the most powerful, extended, held notes in the history of all music that doesn't sound strained. And it, it comes out of nowhere, and you're just in awe. That was the power of Whitney for me, was her live vocal. And what she could do whenever she wanted, however she wanted. She almost never sang the same song live twice in the same way. Right? She put mm. her own spin and stank on it that we know was intentional in that it wasn't done that way on the recording. Because Clive Davis and all those Arista folks did not want her sounding too black in the 80s. <laughs> so Whitney went out on stage and she showed you what she was capable of, where she came from in the church. And so that's what resonates most with me. And the other song that I love of hers, it was a live performance again. I'm cheating. But it's not a duet it's a quadruplet a quartet a quartet (laughs) (laughs) and it's featuring cousin dion luther vandross and stevie wonder Mm. those four together singing that's what friends are for and you take one of the most saccharine songs in pop music history and you have these four singers 
just well these three singers showing out Wait, and cousin Dion stop. harmonizing. Don't don't do Dion like that. That's her song. She's it is, a, it she is, is her a legend. Song. She's iconic. And you don't get to do that to me because I'm the one who's always reminding you of how incredible mm-hmm. Dion is. I say that because Dion wasn't showing out on that performance. Right. She let she let the kids yeah. take it. She did her bit. Meanwhile, Stevie is putting his name into the lyrics. Luther Vandross is doing his signature like... <laughs> and then it's left to Whitney to get her solo toward the mid... Like the two-thirds part of the song. And after you've... You're singing behind Stevie Wonder and Luther Vandross and you just open up your mouth and give us that. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so effortless. And her singing the word for in that sequence is something I will rewind forever. Mm. It's like she opened up her mouth and rainbows came out. And God came out. Exactly. That's what it was. And it was so effortless. As far as Aretha is concerned, Bridge Over Troubled Water, you said I gave that to you. If I go before you, you're playing that at my funeral. I've said that to you before. <laughs> I'll say that on these airwaves. Also, Aretha performing that live on the Grammys in 1971, mm. that is the performance that you need to watch. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. been taken down. It's back again <laughs> on YouTube. You can't stop these stands. This is the internet, okay? It is the best example of her talent. From the piano playing... I think so. ...to the gospel roots, blending it with the pop ballad, putting her own spin on it. And then I have two other ones. I Knew You Were Waiting. It's pop brilliance. Her duet with George Michael. Mm. It comes at a time when her career needs a rework. She's navigating the 80s after dominating the 70s on the R&B charts. She won practically like the first seven R&B Grammy Awards Mm. in the late 60s into the 70s. That was her milieu. And then she goes into the 80s off the back of disco and she has to wheel and come again in her 40s. Not dissimilar to Tina Turner. And you saw Patti LaBelle do the same thing, She did. Like all these greats, all these black greats have to find a new footing in the pop music landscape. Mm -hmm. And Aretha Franklin taps George Michael to give us this pop masterpiece. And it'll never not invigorate me, that song. Mm -hmm. Can I chime in? Of her, like, 80s duets, I like Ever Changing Times a lot. I I really prefer that. Speaking of things I've given to you. Yes, because (laughs) I was a Michael McDonald detractor. You hate, oh my god, like, you, you hated that song for so long. So, okay, so Michael McDonald, if you don't know, was in the Doobie Brothers. A hugely successful act and and solo artist. Careful. Black women love Michael Oh, I know, McDonald. I know. The Doobie Brothers, huge. He goes on to collaborate with a lot of black R&B singers in the 80s because he has a sort of blue-eyed soul mm-hmm. appeal. And so he does Ever-Changing Times. Well. Yes, with Aretha. He does a timeless classic on my own mm-hmm. with Patti LaBelle, which I also love. Yes. and it, But it's taken me... Some time to get there this with is, Michael McDonald. This is 13 years. Yes. This is the first time I've heard this. <laughs> Ever changing times. See that clock up on the wall. It don't bother <laughs> me at all. I love that shit. Yeah. But I but I only introduced that song to you really in the last four years. I know. So now it's on my Spotify and on the way to oh work. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go on. It's your it's your turn. Listen, this man beside me has mocked me endlessly no, for see, my love of 80s music. See, people can change and people like me are willing to admit that they had been wrong. 
okay. in the past. But I, I also want you to give more credit to it. It is music. No, this is where it was man, created. These past few years, I have come around on Miss Anita Baker, on Michael McDonald, on all of Aretha and Patty's 80s stuff. Mm. Like, no, it, for real. I overlooked it. That's on me. Thank you. But Thank we're you. turning the page on the 80s. And finally, my last Aretha track. Her catalog is unrivaled. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, it's ridiculous. You could have a six piece vinyl set on yeah. just like the Aretha Essentials. So this boils down to like what speaks to us. And the final one is Angel. She comes on the record and she says, I got a call the other day from my sister Carolyn. From my sister Carolyn, who was on the other line. She said, Aretha, come on home. I got this song. I got to play for you. And then it starts. Gotta find me an angel. <laughs> And it's, it's so soft, it's so smooth, and it's so emotive. And uh, yeah, I love it. Love everything about it. Her sister Carolyn, who is rumored and pretty much known to be a lesbian, and had her really? own singing career that she tried, but she was more successful behind the scenes as a writer, and she wrote for Aretha a couple songs that became successful, Angel being one of them. Mm-hmm. And it leads me to believe that while Aretha was very tight-lipped about speaking on things, I believe she was mm. an ally. And uh, yeah, that's, All right. that's the story of Angel. Ugh, I don't want to pick just one. You were supposed to pick just one. You picked like three for each. I, but I picked two. If and, I go, yeah. For my fun Aretha songs, I like um, Baby, Baby, Sweet Baby. Mm-hmm. And I Say a Little Prayer for You. I like the, the late 60s, early 70s stuff from Aretha, mostly. That's my favorite, favorite stuff. Her first record on Atlantic is incredible. Yeah. And also, from Whitney, Heartbreak Hotel. Hello. Okay. This was someone whose voice was noticeably damaged and diminished in 1998, mm. 1999. And she said, Kelly, Faith, come join me on this Come join me. jam. And I'm going <laughs> to show Clive Davis what he could have had all these years. Right. First and of all, first of all, I'm going to outsing Kelly Price. And Faith Evans. Mm-hmm. But we are going to collaborate and do this absolute awesome R&B jam in 1999. Mm-hmm. Was it right? Yeah, I believe so. Ugh. And listen, Love it's not it. right, but it's okay. It's gay rights. <laughs> That's what that is. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Maybe we should do a spinoff podcast about only this. About the Trinity. Uh, yeah. That, that's yeah, the name yeah. of the podcast, The Holy Trinity. And then we can, like, weave other people in, like, when Celine tried to outsing Aretha at Diva's Life. That's a whole other thing. That's apparently very controversial for some folks. Uh, for me. <laughs> let's let's not get into that right now. Thank you all for the questions. We didn't get to all of them. That doesn't mean we won't in the future. But we're coming up on two hours right now, so we just have to cut it off. But thanks for listening to uh, episode 187. Yes. Seven. We will eventually recap the tournaments that are going on right now. I know my Bugarin is doing well. Ribakina is, I mean. She is mowing down like the announcing field. herself for real. With Naria carrying the world. <laughs> Doesn't really seem that impressive. Nonplussed. But right. Indian Wells is coming up very soon, so we'll be back to tennis shortly. If the mailbag is just not really for you. We contain multitudes. Thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. 
We are at the Body Serve on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, etc. Till next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>